So we're going to be looking at some verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 that at least on the surface appear to be reinforcing the patriarchy, oppressing people, condoning slavery, and teaching horrific trust in abusive powers. And, just to add, down through history, these verses have often been taken right out of context and have been used to reinforce and teach all of that stuff. I think I've got your attention. Let me just speak into this before we get to the passage. Straight out of the gate, I want to caution us not, underline not, to project all of our modern sensitivities about justice and fairness and equality into the text we're about to read and not to judge it unfairly. Really what I think we need to do before we get into these passages is try to understand the options that were available to these first century followers of Jesus and some of the specific tensions that they were grappling with in their time and place. And so before we get into it and before we do anything else really, I want to help you see this passage, see these verses in their proper context. I want us to try and get back as best we can into the mindset of the original first century audience and imagine what this teaching would have meant for them before then stepping back into the 21st century here in Birmingham and working out how on earth all of this applies to us today. Does that sound like a plan? Oh, well, that's the only plan we've got, so take it or leave it. Uh, to start with, I want you to imagine that you're a Christian back in the first century. Nero is in power at the time. Christians have been exiled out of Rome and are now scattered throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. Many of them aren't citizens which means they don't have the protection or the rights or the privileges that would have come from being part of the Roman Empire. So they're incredibly vulnerable politically. And now they're following a Lord, Jesus, who's at deep conflict with the Lord of their day. And they're trying to figure out what on earth do we do with the opposition and the slander and the persecution that we're experiencing day in, day out. I want you to imagine that early church gathering together in someone's home. They're, they're gathered around the table, gathered around a meal and everybody is talking. You've got some people saying, well, what do we do about the emperor? I mean, the emperor hates us right now. How are we supposed to live in response to this tyrant who has forced us out of our homes? You can imagine other people piping up and saying, well, you think you've got it bad. I mean, we're slaves. What are we supposed to do when our masters are abusive and violent towards us? And to make matters worse, now we have this kind of extra tension because we have all of these Christian ethical convictions that are totally opposed to the practices of our masters. What do we do? And then some of the women speak up and say, well, look, we haven't got it easy either. 
We converted to being followers of Jesus, but our husbands are lords over us, and they could kick us out tomorrow because of our faith. What are we supposed to do when we're following what our husbands would consider to be a foreign god? It's putting us at risk. I wish there was someone who could explain to us how we're supposed to live. And so Peter's like, hey, I heard that some of you are having these issues, you're having these problems, you've got all these questions running through your minds. Here's a letter that addresses some of those issues. That's the context for the passage we're about to read. Or as a guy called John Tyson puts it, really the the issue is framed like this, that the issue is, or the question is, how do we play well in a game we didn't choose and with rules that we cannot change? How do we play well in a game we didn't choose and with rules we cannot change? So all that being said, let's finally turn to the text and look at what Peter has to say about these various categories. We're going to start by looking at citizens and the empire. I'm going to pick it up in 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. Peter writes this, For the Lord's sake, submit to, what's the word? All human authority. Submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials that he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will. Whose will is it? It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free... Yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. First thing we see here is that these early believers are told to submit to the authorities, even the authorities in the Roman Empire namely Nero. Now, this was huge, absolutely huge. You see, it's thought that Nero, if you know your history, you'll know this, Nero was responsible for the great fire of Rome that he instigated pretty much to prepare a way for his brand new palace complex to be built. But to kind of divert the blame from himself, he used Christians as the scapegoat for the fire. And as a result, he then started actively persecuting the Christians. There are records of him capturing Christians, tying them up, covering them in tar, and setting them alight to act as torches in the grounds of his palace. And Peter's saying, even with an emperor like this, you do have to show a measure of respect. Peter says that authority exists in the whole created order of God, and you will do well to submit to it. Because however bad things get, God's design isn't for anarchy. 
and for good reason. History teaches, doesn't it, that in the end, the only people who tend to flourish in anarchy are the strong and predators. Listen, for our well-being, for our protection, God has designed authority that when it is used properly, we can then flourish underneath it. Which is why Peter here calls Christians to show honor and respect for those in authority over them. But then he subverts it. He says, you have freedom, but don't use your freedom to do whatever you want. Use your freedom to live honorable lives or to do good to others. In other words, we aren't free from responsibility to other people. And it's not just a passive responsibility to do no harm to them. No, we all have an active responsibility to go out there and do good and to work as best we can for the welfare of others. I think it's fair to say that this comes way more naturally to some of us than to others. Let me explain why. Over the 23 years that I've had the sheer privilege of living in this city, I've met three types of people. First of all, there are the born and bred Brummies. Do we have any born and bred Brummies in the room? Yay! <laughs> A few. <laughs> or one. <laughs> of the vast kind of expanse of born and bred Brummies that I've met in my time here. Uh, are people who have lived here their whole lives and have no intention of ever moving away. Uh, and, and, and these people, people like Nick here, they, they give the city much-needed stability. So we've got Brummies. Second category, there are people who are more like locusts. I'm not going to ask if we've got any locusts in the room. Uh, these are people who move into the city. They graze on the resources of the city for as long as it's working for them but they're not invested in any way in the well-being of the city. They don't really care about the city. It's all about what they can get out of it. Third group of people are those who come to the city and they have ambition to work for the bettering of the city, to invest themselves in the flourishing of the city. Now, I don't mean to be offensive, maybe slightly offensive, but not too offensive, my observation would be that a lot of us probably, if we're being honest, fall into the category of locusts. We basically come with personal ambition to take what we can. And if we make it, we, we extract everything we can. And if we don't, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get disillusioned and move on. And I know it's often we're more complicated than that. And I know in reality, it, it can be really hard. And I know that you might not feel anything for this city and you certainly don't feel any great sense of call here. But ultimately, I don't think that matters. As God instructed the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah's day, we're to seek the welfare of the city, God says, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So, 
regardless of how you feel about this city, you may love it or hate it, as long as we're here, I think all of us have the mentality, even if everyone else is here just to extract, I'm here to give. So how do I serve? How do I love? How do I bless? How do I contribute? How do I give myself for the flourishing of the city? And I think that's at least part of what Peter's exhorting us to here. With whatever resources you have, do good works that lead to the betterment of the place where God has placed you. And what's the result of all of this? Have a look down at what it says in verse 15. I think part of the purpose of this is to silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. In other words, we're to live such compelling lives of giving and serving and sacrifice that people who are intent on silencing us are themselves silenced. So that's a a little bit on citizens and empire. Let's now turn our attention to the no small matter of slaves and masters. Peter says this in verse 18. He says, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Now look, at some points in history, these verses right here have been used completely out of context, that they've been twisted to mean the exact opposite of what I think Peter intended. You see, they're actually intended as a coping strategy for those who are being oppressed, and certainly not as a power structure to keep people in slavery. And before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge the pretty awful track record that this nation has had in using these verses to create and justify oppression. And I understand that as a white British male standing in front of you right now, I could be seen by at least some of you as a big part of the problem. And that nothing I say right now could come anywhere remotely close to properly addressing the scandalous, scandalous atrocities of the whole slave trade. But for the record, personally, I'm ashamed of our nation's heritage in this whole area. And personally, I thank God for the likes of Frederick Douglass and Mary Prince, and Otabar Kuguano, and William Wilberforce, who all worked so tirelessly in the abolitionist movements in the 18th and 19th centuries. I praise God for their work. You see, these verses 
aren't teaching that slavery is a God-ordained institution. I think Peter's simply trying to help followers of Jesus who find themselves in slavery to others. And he's saying, seek to influence them by the excellence with which you do your work. And if they still beat you down, and if you have to suffer, know that ultimately you have a master in heaven who loves you deeply, and he will reward you. But whatever you do, please don't discredit your witness by becoming angry and bitter and lashing out. In fact, I think if you trace it through, pretty much all the teaching in the New Testament about slaves and masters, basically it is for this reason. Obey your masters so that you can then witness to them and in some way make the gospel more attractive. As Paul puts it in Titus 2 verse 9, slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Why? It says, then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Now, for a much, much fuller treatment of this subject, um, because we're about to move on to something else now, but for a fuller treatment of the subject, uh, I would strongly encourage you to read Ben Lindsay's brilliant and deeply provocative book. We need to talk about race, and especially chapter 3, that really digs into this whole subject of slavery uh, in much more detail. We need to talk about race by Ben Lindsay, well worth a read uh, on this subject and others. That being said, let's thirdly turn our attention to the final area that Peter touches on in this passage, namely wives and husbands. As with harsh governing officials and cruel masters, Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lies will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Now look, at the end of the day, I think probably our, our, our main problem with this whole subject of authority and submission is in our heart of hearts, none of us likes anyone telling us what to do, do we? None of us likes that. But if, if we believe God is both good and wise, if we believe that, then it kind of follows that even though it's hard to accept and our culture would certainly drive us in a very different direction. But if we believe God's both good and wise, we will see his command to submit to those in authority over us as also being good and wise. That being said, if you're a woman in an abusive relationship, it is crucially important that you get help immediately. If you're here today and you're kind of reading this and thinking, I'm in danger, I, 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 there's abuse going on, I, I can't do this. 
get help immediately. If you want to talk to someone in the church here, please can have a chat with me. I'll point you in the direction of someone who can help you, advise you, stand with you. I don't think this passage is saying if, if you're in an abusive relationship, you just endure it. No, there, there are things that we can do about that. Also, just to say, Peter is not calling all women to submit to all men. No, the specific context here is the wife's submission to her own husband. But within that context, and just to underline, as long as it is not abusive, Peter is saying that submission isn't rooted in who your husband is or how responsible he is. It's not rooted in whether or not your husband is even a believer. Submission is ultimately rooted in God's good and wise authority. Now, in all of this, the concern that Peter just keeps on coming back to, and I don't want us to miss this, keeps coming back to the matter of our witness to those who don't believe the gospel, which is why Christian wives are to submit to their unbelieving husbands. Why? In order to win them over. And Peter goes on to speak of the power of an inner beauty, as opposed just to focusing all the time on outward appearance. In verse 3, he says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You, you should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Just in case you're wondering, I don't think Peter's saying here that it's wrong to take care in your appearance. Uh, I mean, as a guy, the amount of hours I spent on my hair this morning, uh, it's it's unthinkable. Uh, I think his point is simply is that uh, outward beauty will fade away. And so, if that is all you're relying on to win your husband or uh, keep him attracted to you, what will happen when your outer beauty disappears? In the long run, it is far more attractive to have a gentle, quiet, submissive spirit. Now, I'm aware that those words immediately trigger a bit of a reaction. I'm aware those words immediately get our heckles up and make us think of all the worst bits of cultural stereotyping. But if you think about it, those are actually words that are used in the Bible to describe Jesus himself. So this isn't speaking of weakness, but actually of immense strength. I think more than anything, it's a call to have a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like spirit, even in a godless marriage, which God says is incredibly precious to him because he sees how costly it is. He sees the sacrifice and will reward you. And let's be honest, 
this is tough stuff, isn't it? And uh, I'm feeling the the icy stares and the awkwardness of what I am delivering right now. Peter's words to women is hard. It's hard to hear. It's incredibly countercultural, isn't it? But let's just for balance not miss how challenging Peter's call is to husbands as well. Verse 7, and hear me out on this as well. It gets worse before it gets better. Verse 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, you may well beg to differ here, uh, but I don't think Peter's been derogatory to women here. I think he's simply acknowledging that a lot of men do have the potential to control their wives by sheer physical brute strength. And his message to husbands is, don't do that. Use whatever strength you have to protect your wife, not to intimidate her, and certainly not to control her. Not only that, honor your wife. Honor your wife, just like Christ honored the church and laid down his life for her. Because Peter says your wife is very much your equal, and so treat her with respect. Treat her with consideration. And to drive the message home, Peter adds that if you don't listen to these instructions, then God won't listen to you, husbands, when you pray. Now, I'm not even going to try to explain what that means, other than it does seem like a very real threat. And I, for one, want to treat Helen, my wife, so well that I never find out what this verse actually means in practice. That's the aim. So, all that being said, try and summarize that the thrust of the message or the strand tying together all of these different things. Basically, I think Peter is resetting the power dynamics at work in those of us who are followers of Jesus. He's calling us all to model lives of submission and service to the people around us for the sake of our gospel witness. Because let's be honest, if we live this way, we will stand out, won't we? That's all well and good. But here's the burning question. What if none of this works? What if you try and be respectful, but you are still persecuted? What do you do if you try and serve your master and they still make your life absolutely miserable? What if you try and serve your spouse and they just turn around and take advantage? What do you do then? Anyone interested in the answer? Oh, if I were you, I'd be very interested in that answer. Here's what Peter says. He basically says, suffer well. Don't retaliate, and whatever you do, do not become bitter. 
Because there is no guarantee whatsoever that all of this teaching will win the favor of others. Quite the opposite. Peter is writing to people who knew what it was to suffer in real ways for doing good. And Peter is at pains to stress that unjust suffering isn't a sign that we've done something wrong or that God has somehow lost control of things or has failed us. In fact, if we are never even slightly inconvenienced because of our faith, then I'd humbly suggest we need to seriously evaluate whether or not our faith is worth persecuting. You see, read the Bible, comfort and Christianity are usually incompatible. If we faithfully follow Jesus' steps, then we will need to learn to suffer at some point in the way that he suffered, which I think is the point that Peter's making in verses 21 to 25 here. He says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and now live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Listen, in his suffering, Jesus is always our example. And what an example. That's why we're worshipping earlier on. Jesus is always our example. But he's also so much more than our example. whole purpose, the point of Jesus' death was to put an end to sin once and for all and free, liberate his people to now live for what is right. And when we today face unjust suffering, we don't need to retaliate because we can trust God to eventually right all wrongs. And so, Peter, to people who have been kicked out of their homes, to to people who are being mistreated at work and find themselves in frustrating marriages, to people who have no rights and cannot appeal to the law of the land, Peter's message is simple. You don't need to take justice into your own hands. Ultimately, you can leave it in God's. So, That is my best attempt to try and explain what Peter taught believers back in around about 64 AD. The question that remains before we've finished is how does all of this affect our lives today? There are a few thoughts. Just to say, I do think it does affect our lives today. (laughs) I suggest Peter's teaching is still highly relevant. I mean, we're still deeply confused, aren't we, about many of the same things. Like, how do we show loyalty today to authorities, to government, when we fundamentally don't agree with them? What do we do with power dynamics in the workplace, when we perhaps have someone over us who is ungodly, 
and we don't know how to stand up to them on ethical issues. Uh, what do we do if we're married to someone who has different beliefs to us? How, how do we influence them towards believing in Jesus? And so before we're done, I just want to take a few moments to attempt to apply this deeply into our own situation. First thing I want to say is that actually we, we, we hear this stuff, we, we hear the context there. Today we have so much more freedom than believers in the first century when it comes to our relationship with the state, to the government, to the rulers over us. Uh, a lot of people, I think it's fair to say, are pretty down on the government right now, aren't they? But let's get things in some kind of perspective. The UK is still much better than the vast majority of places on planet Earth. We have so much freedom and so much protection, which I think means we have more response options open to us and we have a responsibility to utilize them. So here are a few suggestions just to get you thinking. Why don't you use the freedom you have to passionately pray for the government and the future of our nation? As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all those who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Let me ask you a question. If the Bible commands you to pray for your leaders, are you obeying the commands? Like, when was the last time you prayed for Boris Johnson and not prayed judgment on him, prayed kind prayers in his direction? Note to all of us, running a country is probably harder than we think. If you think you could do a better job, the reality is, most of the time, probably you couldn't. I'm not saying that I think Boris is doing a great job. I'm making no political statements here at all. I'm just saying we could do with a bit of humility and recognize it is probably harder than we think. And so why don't we pray for wisdom for our leaders? If Christians would simply channel half the energy they exert in public complaints instead into private prayer, who knows how God might break in and what might be different. But let's own that together as a responsibility that we have. Let's prioritize the practice of praying for those in authority over us. Every time we have a negative thought about them, every time uh, a critical thing comes uh, across our social media feed, why don't we turn it to prayer for those in positions of responsibility over us? Second thing with practice is respectful resistance. If you do disagree on something, then I want to appeal to you to make the most of the freedom that you have in order to resist, but with respect. I think we need a resurgence of Christian activism, but one that is characterized by love for our enemies. Our nation is so divided right now, isn't it? So let's pray together for the future we long for, 
And let's model how to stand up for what we believe and resist, but with respect. Next thing to put out there. If you are at school or in some kind of employment, let's aim to be excellent as pupils at school or as employees. If we believe that God ultimately is over us, that he's our ultimate boss or ultimate head teacher, then we don't have to fear our earthly boss or head teacher and we don't have to compromise in order to keep them happy. And even when we endure suffering, I think we can trust God to protect us and reward our integrity, if not in this life, for sure in the life to come. And then finally, let's be missional in our marriage. Now, don't hear me wrong, that advocating that as an approach, kind of go out and try and marry an unbeliever for the sake of the gospel. Uh, the, the Bible is very clear about not dating unbelievers. But if for whatever reason you, you find yourself in a marriage with someone who doesn't believe, I want to encourage you to not give up hope. You never know when God might break in. Just keep acting with kindness and grace. All that being said, all of this, wherever it lands for you, all of this has one goal. Here's what it is. As Peter says, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. God's will for your life is that so much goodness flows out of it that it literally silences those who oppose you. That's his will for you. So much goodness will come from your life. So much Christ-likeness. So much fruit of the Spirit that your accusers, whoever they are, wherever they are, they'll be silenced. I think through all of this, if you make that your aim, you won't go far wrong.